we used to be great in innovation. We need to make sure that we invest in innovation. We invest in research. And the fruits of that research is manufacturing and manufacturing during this information age. And we have to keep it on shore and we have to get after it like a bulldog on a bone. Welcome to Accelerate Defense, a podcast from Acme General Corp. I'm Ken Harbaugh, principal at Acme and host of this month's episode. On Accelerate Defense, we hear from political figures, military professionals, and other thought leaders about how innovation shapes our national security landscape. My guest today is the Honorable Patrick Murphy, former congressman from Pennsylvania and acting secretary of the Army. He's been a paratrooper, founded a tech startup, been a leading voice on cybersecurity within government, and he currently serves as the Distinguished Chair of Innovation at the United States Military Academy. In short, Patrick Murphy has seen just about every side of the defense innovation equation, and he's also an old friend. Murph, it's great to have you on the show. It is great to be on with you, and happy St. Patrick's Day month. Yeah, happy St. Patrick's Day month. I think we're going out uh, a week after the day itself, but uh, hopefully you're still celebrating. We're professionals here at Acme, Murph, so from now on you'll be Patrick. But one of the things that really struck me and going back over your resume and all of the amazing things that you have done is that you've had this almost compulsive need to embrace change in everything you've done, not just embrace it, but lead through it. And maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I'd suggest that one of the things that motivates you is an inherent belief in progress, not just technological, but social, as evidenced by your drive in Congress to abolish Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Where did you get that from, that belief that the wheel turns forward? Well, you know, my dad was enlisted in the Navy and then served for 22 years as a Philadelphia police officer. And my mother was a Catholic nun. So I joked that luckily she dumped Jesus for Jack Murphy. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But um, <laughs> we're all about Catholics still. But they instilled in my brother, sister, and I that we could change the world. Part of that was that we could serve in our communities and for our country. So, you know, like you, I did ROTC. And, you know, when I was 19, I joined and I was dating a girl from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And her dad was to Stumptown and said to me, like, Patrick, like, why would you serve? Like, you're a sophomore in college. Like, you're in the Deans last year. The captain of the hockey team is a sophomore. Like, what? And I'm like, well, sir, I want to serve. I'm going to be in three years from now. I'm going to be a, a lieutenant in the Army. And he's like, well, what happens if a war breaks out? And I'm like, well, then I would go and serve. That's what they're training me for. Now, little did I know, 10 years later, I'd be in the middle of Baghdad, Iraq, and 130 degree heat with that 82nd Airborne Division. But, you know, my parents just instilled that it's our responsibility to make this world a better place. And so whether it was my time in Congress, my time in the Army, you always have to make things better, and it's incumbent on us to make it better for the next generation. You've described yourself as a vetrepreneur. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I love the term. Tell us what it means. It, it's really just a, an entrepreneur who happens to be a veteran. This country was established by veterans that signed the Declaration of Independence, that served the content of Congress. And you got to remember, our Army and Navy and Marine Corps were founded even before we had the United States of America in 1776. You know, we started in 1775. After World War II, you know, when you had the greatest economic growth in American history at World War II, it was really triggered by American GIs coming home. Half went to college in the GI Bill. The other half, a lot of them went to go work for small businesses or start their own small business. And they created these incredible iconic global brands, brands that we take for granted, but they were started as a small business by an American troop coming back. So, you know, whether it's Nike, the largest sports apparel company in the world that was started in the back of a car by Bill Bowerman, who was in the 10th Mountain Division, Army officer, or 
Comcast, start by maybe that Ralph Roberts, who started the largest media company in the world. You know, fast forward the next generation of Vietnam veterans. And, you know, you have people like Fred Smith and Marine who came back and started FedEx. But I would say to you again, you know, a lot of folks, access to capital is a little bit easier. And now we need to make sure we take care of our brothers and sisters, the next generation of entrepreneurs. So they start their own business, but it's less than 5% of them that actually do it. That's a space that you're very active in, not just as an advocate, as someone who tries to uplift the vets taking that leap, but you're an advisor, uh, an investor. You have helped in substantive ways some of those veterans get that leg up, right? No doubt. Yeah, I'm just, I put my money and my time where my mouth is. So I have a little venture capital fund. It's called Stony Johnson Group. We raised over $12 million. We've invested in 90% of our investments are in veteran companies. You know, we've had some great success. Veterans are actually more likely to start a small business if it's to be successful than civilians. And it's the positive part of veterans coming back as civic assets to our nation. So whether it's that making that direct investment, whether it's starting companies myself, or whether it's teaching the next generation of leaders of character at West Point, which I do now as I chair innovation up there, that's incredibly important during these defining moments. Talk to us about that. You are now the Distinguished Chair of Innovation and Strategic Engagement at West Point. Does that allow you time in the classroom like you used to have? No, listen, I didn't go to West Point, but I taught there as a young Army captain. And I was there teaching constitutional law and law of war for commanders when, unfortunately, our nation was attacked on 9-11. So I had already been to airborne and air assault school, and I was getting ready for ranger school, but then I had to, you know, I deployed under then General Petraeus and our ground forces commander was a colonel named Mark Billy, who's now the chairman of the Joint Staff. So I deployed right at the 9-11 in 2002 and came back from that deployment and that was part of the invasion force in Iraq in 03 and came off from Iraq in 2004. I had this great opportunity to teach at West Point. And then after I served in Congress, I was on the board there. I mean, I dragged a Kool-Aid to the place. It's an hour and a half from my house. And it, it is a special place. So to be able to be up there once a month to go be back in classes at Thayer Hall and just to be part of, you know, mentorship and, and then connecting, frankly, West Point to better connect them with the Pentagon, but better connect them to private industry and, you know, trying to tackle our challenges. That's incredibly important. Well, I don't think I could ever admit, at least not on a podcast like this, to having drunk the West Point Kool-Aid. But when I had the opportunity to teach at Yale, one of the highlights was bringing my class down to West Point for an exchange and exposing those Yale undergrads to a day in the life of a cadet. And for some of them, it was just mind-blowing. The dedication that is required to spend four years there, much less a day, hats off. Tell us about your role and what you're doing as the chair of innovation. Why is innovation becoming such a touchstone at West Point and within the Army more broadly? Yeah, well, listen, it goes to the premise that America at its best, she is a reluctant warrior. So we don't fight unnecessary wars. We don't want to acquire anyone's land or their treasure. But we do fight for a little guy when need be. We stand up for our allies and others. Part of the greatness of our military is our deterrence. So we deter others from wanting to fight us or want to engage us or wanting to go on a world stage and do harm to others, especially innocents. Because of that, you know, we need to make sure that we have the best fighting force in the world and we need to make sure that they don't have a fair fight, that they have the technical and the tactical advantage over our enemies. And so you see that and it's the best training. It's tough sledding. It's, it's hard to go about it. But, you know, just at Fort Campbell, Kentucky this month, you know, Merritt Aerosol School, which I did back in 2000. 
you know, air assault schools, 10 days where you're learning how to sling load operations off a helicopter and repel out of a helicopter 250 feet in the air. The reality of it is it's like, you know, we put these young men and women through the grinder of this tough training. We give them best in class weapon systems, communication systems, and then we expect them to keep their troops ready to defend our country and to keep our family safe here at home. Beyond providing soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines with the best kit we can give them so that they have that unfair advantage, what's the significance of building an innovative mindset? I mean, your role at West Point has got to involve that, right? You're not just about kit. You're about shaping thinking. Right. And, you know, part of that is that we have to have the underdog mentality. You know, we have a country in China a communist country that, and again, I'm not trying to pick a fight and we're, we're trying to deter others from wanting to fight us, but our combat overmatch has eroded. They have a billion people. They think their destiny is to be the number one country in the world and be dominant. And they don't see it as a win-win. They see it as a win-lose. And so my priority, you know, when I ran the army or worked with vegetables, we need to make sure that our programs, our innovative programs that are on budget, that they're on schedule, we have to understand that we are in the information age. We're not in the manufacturing age anymore, Ken. You know, manufacturing is critically important, and we still have to be in manufacturing. But we got to be thinking about AI and 5G and cloud computing and have best-in-class folks come to West Point, have partnerships, these public-private partnerships, private industry, to make sure that we have that technical tactical advantage over our enemies. And the officer corps needs to understand that, not just the acquisition folks or the contracting teams, but the cadre of mid-level leaders needs to understand that, right? No doubt. I mean, Ken, you've been an innovator your whole life, co-founding the Mission Continues, being a president of Team Rubicon. I mean, these are world-class organizations that you're a national leader in. That gives our generation, our post seven generation of veterans hope and to be part of the solution. So, you know, when you look at the officer corps or enlisted those war fighters, we have to first understand we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We have to listen to them. We have to see what works. But the industrial base of our country, of the United States of America, again, this whole thing of defense contractors, et cetera, you know, these are public-private partnerships. But this industrial base, Ken, that's the arsenal of democracy. You know, we have to make sure that we are manufacturing things, that we are developing things for the information age that were made in America. When you stroll through a Best Buy, as you know, you won't find anything that's made in America. We used to be great at innovation. We need to make sure that we invest in innovation. We invest in research. And the fruits of that research is manufacturing and manufacturing during this information age. And we have to keep it onshore and we have to get after it like a bulldog on a bone. You have observed and more than that, participated in this innovation ecosystem in just about every way imaginable, initially as a warfighter, then at a senior government level as Undersecretary of the Army, then Acting Secretary of the Army, and as an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur. What do you think the biggest challenges facing defense innovation are today? Well, if you get a chance, and I think you probably read it, the Kill Chain by Chris Bros. He was the staff director in the Senate Armed Services Committee when I was going through confirmation. But he wrote that book, The Kill Chain, and, and he talks about the military industrial congressional complex. And it's not agile, it's wasteful. And, you know, when I testified in Congress, you know, and again, serving in the Armed Service Committee, you know, I was there pushing out, you know, when Ash Carter was the Undersecretary of Defense, we were pushing out and greenlighting MRAV vehicles with 
being sheep holes. Why is that? Because, you know, every 34 convoys, we have a U.S. troop that is killed in the line of duty. And when I lost 19 men in my 7th Brigade Combat Team with the 82nd Armor Division, the majority of those 19 were killed by roadside bombs because we were in the middle of our sheep Baghdad in, in the Sunni and Shia area. So we got after it. You know, we made sure those factories were running 24 hours a day and we put the money behind it to make sure that we were saving lives. And then when I was running the army, I'm testifying to Congress, asking for the budget, sitting there with then the chief of staff of the army was Mark Milley, who's now he's up to be the chairman of the staff. But Ken, I used to say to the Congress, we need to make sure that we have a better infrastructure. We, you know, we don't need more brick and mortar. We need to invest and make sure that we're doing what's necessary. We have buildings that are unoccupied. We have to get rid of them because it's costing the taxpayer money and we could use that money for better purposes. But if it's in someone's congressional district, they're like, well, no, I'm not letting you shut down part of the post or part of that or part of this. And that was short-sighted. And we have to get after it. We have to act with a sense of urgency. And we have to really do what's necessary to understand this is life or death for our sons and daughters, that warrior class that is stepping up to defend our families. Well, that rollout of the MRAP that you referenced sure as hell was a life and death pursuit, and it broke just about every rule in the acquisitions book, which it should have. But today we're we're left with a system, and I love your perspective from your days at the top of the food chain in the Army, where you have, for example, Army Futures Command coordinating and consolidating and driving modernization, and then Army Acquisitions assault in charge of procurement. And they're both at the same level hierarchically and just leaves a giant question mark over who is going to build that bridge between the desperate need and the acquisition. The MRAP being, I think, a great case in point. Yeah, well, let's face it. You know, when you're talking about the Department of Defense, you know, with 2.5 million folks, or whether you're even just talking about the Army, with 1.5 million you know, we're the largest of the services and frankly, the least funded because we're in the people business. But I would say to you, it's hard to make it innovative on scale. It's just hard to modernize the army. But when you say modernization, you have to have priorities. If you try to do everything, Ken, as you know, you can't get anything done, right? So I'm sure when you're running for Congress, everyone has the magic solution. You're running for Congress, hey, just go on Oprah and free show, you'll win. It, well, it's not that easy, right? And if you spend eight hours a day trying to call Oprah and everyone that you know that's connected to her or tangentially connected to her, you're going to waste a lot of your time, right? You got to focus on what you can get done. You got to focus on two or three things. And so for me, as a leader in the country, you know, my personnel at West Point or when I was in the Pentagon, you need two out of three. And it's readiness to make sure that our troops are ready to fight tonight. Number two, you have that modernization. And again, that's going into what we need to do to modernize our military to make sure that it's not a fair fight, that we have, frankly, combat overmatch. But we don't have it right now against allies or pure competitors like China or Russia. But I'll say to you, then you also have to talk about for an army, for the people business, it's about end strength, right? The Navy, it's about their platform is really, you know, how many ships you're going to have, right? Now, again, that's the platform. And so to me, you have to be, are we going to really invest in readiness? Are we going to really invest in modernization? Then you got to look at the platform. Do you really need to have, you know, a 355 ship Navy? Or do you really need to have 1.2 million soldiers? You know, and again, I'm not saying we don't, but again, these things aren't, in a vacuum, if you pull from readiness to invest in modernization, your troops aren't going to be as ready. You know, if you're so focused on building ships, then, you know, it has to be paid for and those type of things. So when I look at this, we've asked less than 1% of our nation, we're in the longest wars in American history, to keep our families safe. But we really need to do a better job at creating more public-private partnerships. The government isn't just going to have to do this themselves. We have to partner with not just big defense prime. We have to invest with entrepreneurs and vegetables to make sure that 
they're innovative. You know, they're not getting crushed in what we call the valley of death. I was going to ask you about that. What are the one or two things we could do in the near term to address that valley of death that, while it isn't always an existential threat to these non-traditional companies and startups, it is certainly a barrier to them partnering with government because the procurement cycles are just too long. They would rather just not deal with the hassle. And as a result, our national security suffers. Right. And so, you know, there's great military or national security leaders who talk about the Valley Death and and they suggest, and, and I agree with this, we have a bridge fund for innovative commercial firms, especially in competitive areas like artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, and quantum computing as a way to basically stave off pressure from their investors to walk away from the Department of Defense. In the Army, we're pretty good. You know, we have securities, it's long-range precision fires, it's next-gen combat vehicles, it's future vertical lift, helicopters go twice as fast, twice as distance. But that's just one area of that partnership. Congress has granted the Pentagon like a range of flexible authorities for quick contracting. And when I look at it, I think sometimes the acquisition workforce, frankly, they've lagged a little bit in using them. Joint rapid acquisition cell and some others. Like I think sometimes that red tape that's involved with shifting money between procurement and research and development and operations and maintenance accounts. It's just daunting. It's like this clerical road march. So I think there's a lot of things we could do to make it easier. And again, not easier necessarily at scale, but easier to really partner with the best in class innovative firms that will help them survive that value death and help them really partner with our Department of Defense. In the short time we've got left, I want to give you a chance to talk about the cyberspace solarium and what you're doing there and your focus on cybersecurity and AI in particular? Well, listen, I was honored to be asked by leaders. There's 14 MS commissioners. It's a deputy secretary of defense and U.S. senators like Ben Sass and Angus King and U.S. congressmen like Bill Marine, Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin and Jim Manjin from Island. And then private sector leaders, CEOs of Southern Company. And somehow I'm one of these 14 commissioners. And we are getting, in not just the public sector, but in the private sector, we're getting our lunch handed to us with cyber attacks time and time again. I'm not just talking about Russia either, by the way, but China with intellectual property, other countries that are committing cyber crime with two of our biggest companies. And they're not just doing it to America, they're doing it all over the globe. But, you know, when you have them running economy in the world, we're, we're a big target. But this has resulted in the death of people. We've had some deaths from cyber crime over in Great Britain. And we need to do a better job. I'm a big fan of General Nagasone, Defend Forward, and what does Defend Forward mean? And we have to use the whole of nation approach when it comes to cybersecurity. Notice, I didn't say whole government approach. I'm talking about whole nation approach to partner with the private sector, to defend our assets, to make sure that we're not getting taken advantage of, and to make sure whether they're talking about solar winds or the other violations that have happened, that we're protecting ourselves from our data being stolen, whether it's on an individual level, a company level and certainly from the government level. So I'm proud to be a part of that commission. We had 82 recommendations. About 26 became law these past few months and the last National Defense Authorization Act. But we're doing some really creative things like we're looking at Sarbanes-Oxley, the partner and, and put some more in the private sector and partnering with the private sector to push out information to them that they desperately need. So didn't mean to go too long, Ken, about talking about the U.S. Cyberspace Land Commission, but we have open hearings and we meet once a week and it's, it's 14 great Americans that I'm partnering with and, and a great staff that we're trying to do what's necessary to right move the needle when it comes to defending America. 
No, I'm, I'm glad you went on about it because, as you said, we are getting our lunch handed to us. One of the things that irks me whenever it comes up in this debate, though, is this notion that there is something about liberal democracies that makes them inherently more vulnerable and their bias towards openness and transparency means we cannot hope to address this threat. Do you buy that? No doubt. I mean, and you saw it in 2016 and the Mueller report showed it in the 2016 presidential election. Rush was putting out this information, letting the black community know. And again, they're going from both sides to get the far left all stoked up, to get the far right all stoked up. We saw in 2016, we talked about what Russia did, caught them red-handed. And then in 2020, the same thing. They're trying to go against the strength of America, trying to make it sound like our elections were rigged, that it wasn't a fair, that the race was stolen. Again, I'm not being partisan here. I'm saying this as an American, and most folks in Washington would agree that Russia has played a role in trying to undermine the very foundation of our democracy, that we are united at one cause, and that is freedom and democracy, not just for all Americans, but to be that shining city on the hill for other countries and help them. And they're trying to undermine our own people. They've had some success. They're trying to do it now and trying to scare people from taking the vaccine, whatever one you want to take. I mean, it's been effective. It's been safe. And it'll help establish herd immunity and allow us to get our economy born again. But they're trying to scare people not taking it so they continue to sit home. And we have to get after it. We have to get our economy back moving again. We have to get our military stronger than ever. And hopefully when we get the military stronger than ever, it is to have it as a deterrent effect. So we go back at our, our core strength, and that is America. And she is that reluctant warrior that will only fight if it's as a last resort. Couldn't have said it better myself, Murph. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Honored to have you. Hey, Ken, you're the man. You're a great American buddy anytime. And thanks for all that you do. Accelerate Defense is an awesome podcast, brother. I love it. I use it. I'm a follower. And if I can ever be helpful in the future, I'm here for you. Thanks again to Patrick for joining us on this month's episode of Accelerate Defense. Next month, we're talking to two leaders of startups who've chosen to work with the DOD, Dale Kim of AI Reverie and Daniela Perdomo of Gotenna. We're gonna talk about the challenges and the opportunities that come with making that leap. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review Accelerate Defense on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find the show. And subscribe to the series today wherever you get your podcasts so you can get each episode in your feed when they come out every month. Accelerate Defense is a monthly podcast from Acme General Corp. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to the team at Acme. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Accelerate Defense. Thanks for listening.